Miami's public land meant for affordable housing was used for profit for developers. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. A recent audit shows that a lot of the public land that was supposed to go to affordable housing actually lined the pockets of developers. We'll tell you more about that audit. Also, you know, we can't talk about one side of the coin of George Merrick's life and ignore the other. We go to a conversation with a black reverend who shares his experiences with a complicated legacy left behind by the founder of Coral Gables, George Merrick. Finally, can you identify that bird? It's Wildlife Thursday, and today we're looking at the iconic South Florida bird, the flamingo. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. You're probably tired of hearing it. Miami-Dade County has become the least affordable place in the country. Well, a new discovery is giving us insight into how we got into this current situation. For years, the county gave or sold public land to developers to build affordable housing. A recent audit shows that in many cases, developers profited off the land, never built the affordable housing. Joining me now is WLR and Danny Rivera to help us better understand what came out of that audit. Danny, great to have you in studio. Thanks for having me. So for years, Miami-Dade had public land that was set aside for affordable housing, expected that the developers would build it. How much land are we talking about, roughly? Right. So just a tiny bit of background. This was called the infill um, housing program. and basic, Which goes back to the 90s. Which goes back to, to, to 1997 is when this audit goes back to. Um, but basically what it is is the county owns land all across the county, up and down. And a lot of that land was just sitting vacant for a long time. Nothing was happening with it. So this was an, an, an attempt to say, hey, if we give this property to developers for either a very, very low price or for basically free, with the condition that those developers build affordable housing on it, it'll be a better use of that land. So this audit that we're talking about, it took a look at about 1,400 properties that the county gave to, to developers since 1997. And um, more than 300 of these properties have had things happen with them that I think everyone would classify as shady things happen to them. Um, the, there's the, the sizes of those properties, the square footage is, it varies. It's not explicitly clear all the time for every property in the audit, but some are bigger, some are smaller. And basically this was <laughs> this was the attempt from the county to get affordable housing. Built. First of all, who did the audit or who called for it? Right. So th the the county commission called for it, um, specifically Chairman Jose Pepe Diaz and, and um, Commissioner Joe Martinez. They, you know, people have been talking about this in the, in the last uh, couple months, but uh, they basically asked the, 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 the county auditor, the Miami-Dade Office of the Commission Auditor, which audits things relating to the commission, they asked them to look into it and provide this final report. So just based on because people were talking, it's like, all right, we should do an audit. <laughs> I mean, it speaks to like, why are we doing this now? Well, we're, right. well we're, we're hearing about this now because as you mentioned, you know, Miami-Dade has become the least affordable place in the country for housing, um, which is an inflection point. And so it's, it's causing a lot of kind of looking back to see, 
okay, well, what have we been doing? You know, if we're going to do things going forward, let's take a look at what we've been doing. And, and this is the result of that. You pointed out, I mean, you see shady stuff. I mean, some of these developers, I mean, they were just, they were making money. Right. I mean, so let me, let me give you a couple of the, the specifics. So out of all these properties, there was 28 of them that were completely lost because the, the developers who got these properties took out loans for other developments and then use those properties as collateral. And then when they couldn't make the payments, they lost the land. So the land that was slated, uh, um, you know, actually agreed to contractually that you had to build affordable housing on this, that land has been lost. That's that's 28 properties that have been lost. And then there's, you know, according to the report, they, they estimate it's 282 properties did have housing built on them. It was developed, but those developers turn around and they sold those those units and those, that housing for far lo far larger sums than what is actually considered affordable. So they took this previously publicly owned land, developed not affordable housing, and then sold it. But the whole point of the program was for affordable housing. Do we know? By the way, does the audit point out like who the developers are? Do we know who these people are? We we do know. A lot of their names. So is it possible that the county can go after them for something? That is something that Commissioner Raquel Regalado brought up at a commission meeting last week. She said, we have their names. We know that they have not lived up to, to the agreements that they previously made with the county. We know that there was shady things going on. We know that a lot of them made killer profits on this, which was in a lot of cases contrary to the like the actual deeds the deeds that the that the county handed over to the developers came with restrictions. And a lot of what was going on here was directly contrary to those deeds. So the commissioner basically raised the, the question, okay, well, can't we just can't we sue some people? Like, Is it should, like should, a breach of contract or something? It it does appear in, in several cases to be a breach of contract. And um you know, on the on the other side of it, um this audit that came out was from, like I said, the office of the commission auditor, but the chairman, Jose Pepe Diaz, has asked the Miami-Dade inspector general to look into it, which is kind of an important development because the, the inspector general kind of has a direct line to prosecutors. A lot of times the reports that they come out with when they, they find shady things going on in other county departments, a lot of times they recommend things to prosecutors for criminal charges. So we're just learning about this, but this is probably we're probably at the beginning now that we have the information. Uh, am I to believe that are we still selling or giving that land away or is that stopped? So, um, I mean, in the, in the last couple of years, the amount of well, I should say in the last year or so, the, the amount of land given away to these developers has basically stopped. Um, so in 2020, 189 properties were given to developers. Um, in 2021, which was the first full year of the current mayor, Daniela Levine Cava's administration, six were given away. So it's been a very sharp drop in the in the number of properties given away. And a lot of the commissioners are calling for a complete and total pause on all of this until the county really gets their stuff together. Because this, you know, this was the ball was in their court and they basically dropped it. So the uh, the government needs to figure this out. Danny, did anybody like did they ever not have oversight like <laughs> so that they could go and say like, oh, you were given this land or we sold this land to you and you were expected to build this. And OK, but we see that you didn't do it. I mean, was there we just sold it to them and that was it. We just 
thought they were going to do it. You know, this is one of the rare instances as a, as a reporter, usually we hedge and say, you know, some people say in this case, everyone is saying this was a failure. The government is saying this is a failure on the government. This was a complete, 20 years of failure. Th this was a complete dropping the ball situation for the county government that extends back more than 20 years. Um, and part of the problem, according to to the current mayor, Daniela Levin-Cava, is that th this was a bu bureaucracy problem. The The tracking of this oversight was spread across multiple de uh, departments in the county government. It became kind of a hot potato situation. Like, do you do this or are you expecting the other department to do it? And there was no centralized oversight mechanism. So over decades, things were happening and the county government was just not on it. They, 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 were, they were just not on it. So for 25 years, we could have been building affordable housing and in many cases did not. I mean, again, the mayor's only been in, in office for a little bit, but what has she said about going forward? Right. So some things are happening. The, the, the county a couple months ago, because there was a really preliminary version of this report that came out with just bullet points said, like, here's some of the things that we might expect, but we didn't have the details. So with that preliminary report, the, 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 the county has started to make some changes. And the, the mayor's office says that there is, um, you know, a, a handful of things that are that are in the process right now that they're changing the operating procedures. Um, changing the way that the data is tracked and centralizing it. Um, they, they are hoping to increase staff that will monitor these cases. Um, something has to change. But also something, you know, going back, like we know who the developers are. Is there going to be more done to hold them accountable for what they didn't do? So Right. And, and you know, I, I will mention like, some of these are particular companies that we have the the names for and then some of them are actually some of the i don't want to say guilty but i guess i just said it um guilty parties are actual cities so like like florida city for example in 2003 they got nine properties that were designated for affordable housing Re instead of developing them they actually transferred the ownership to the florida city community develop redevelopment agency which is basically supposed to to eliminate blight they're supposed to create housing it's what kind of what they do they didn't do anything with it they sat on it for almost 20 years and then they actually sold off these properties in 2018 and 2021 without doing anything with them and they did that without telling the county government which they were required to do and this is a city this is a municipality that did this Trying to solve problems, not going to get there if we're not even watching over, uh, you know, who's running all of this. Danny Rivero, great reporting. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lewis. Again, and you can follow his reporting on this story, by the way, on our website, WLRN.org. Well, still to come, more on the complicated legacy behind George Merrick, who founded the city of Coral Gables. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. A few weeks ago, we hosted the first of two conversations about the complicated and nuanced legacy left behind by the founder of the city of Coral Gables, George Merrick. However, in the mid-1930s, Merrick advocated in favor of a proposed Dade County Commission, quote, Negro resettlement plan. He also argued in front of the Miami Board of Realtors that 
the removal of black residents would be fundamental to achieving goals for the rest of Miami. These are details documented in a Miami Hurricane article from July of 2020. Some students and faculty at the University of Miami have protested since. His supporters say that UM has overlooked some of his contributions to the black community. He donated lands to the Bahamian immigrant community, also money for a black school, according to a letter. City commissioners in Coral Gables voted unanimously last month to honor Merrick with a Founders Day celebration. The black population of Coral Gables today is about 3% compared to the county, which is 17% black. Sundial's Katie Munoz recently spoke with Reverend Nathaniel Robinson III. He is the senior pastor of Greater St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church in Coconut Grove. Some of his congregants live in Coral Gables, and as you'll learn, the church owns property in the city beautiful. Greater St. Paul has been in this community since um, 1896. We've been we've been here for 126 years. So uh, we our church was founded by uh, Bahamian immigrants. I pastored the descendants of those people. I became the pastor of 2017, December of 2017, um, and right away. Um, you get to know who George Merrick is. For one of my first meetings when I arrived here at the church um, was at the city of Coral Gables at City Hall. Um, we have a property that we own in Coral Gables. And, um, you know, there have been some some citations, some notices, some things we had to go take care of. So one of my first meetings um, after becoming a pastor, I wasn't even here for seven days, was with then Commissioner Vince Lago, who's now the mayor. I went over to his office and of course, there's this huge statue right in front of City Hall. You know, there's no way to come to Coral Gables without knowing or seeing that name. It's on everything. Um, I, I feel like you know the the spirit of George, the racist spirit of George Merrick, is still being perpetuated um, in the city of Coral Gables. Um, uh, our treatment as a church, um, you know, it's hard to compare because uh, you know there is only one black church in. Coral Gables. Um, when I arrived here, um, unfortunately, that church uh, is not existing Coral Gables anymore. Um, but as the only black church that owns property uh, in the city of Coral Gables, it's really difficult to point to uh, a disparity in treatment. But but it has been very challenging for us um, to push forward our goals to get things done. Uh, there are certain people within the city government who have been extremely helpful. Um, who have you know tried to help us with, with the things that we've tried to do in the city. Um, however, just the overarching um, government there has been very, very difficult to navigate. Um, and I, have we seen other people, other general contractors and go in and get permits and things pushed through a bit faster than we have? Absolutely, we've seen that. If you could explain sort of where this land is. Right, so it's it's actually right on the east border of Coral Gables. Um, it's on Brooker Street, um, which is which is the line. You know, that's the line. If you walk across the other side of Brooker Street, you're in the cities of, city of Miami. Um, so again, you know, this was um, a part of um, Mr. Merrick's uh, uh, plan, you know, to push the African-Americans to the outskirts of the city. Um, and uh, so those four shotgun houses uh, built um, I believe in about the 30s, um, uh, when when uh, Mr. Merrick was in politics and government, uh, is where some of the people 
who uh, built some of the buildings in city of Coral Gables lived. There are four, four wood, frame, wood frame vernacular houses. We know them as shotgun houses um, built by Bah this Bahamian descendants from, from Bahamas and from Key West. Um, uh, and they're right there, just right on the east border of the city of Coral Gables. Do you, do you feel like your church and the property you own feels welcomed? I mean, I guess I'll say this. If you look at uh, the city of Coral Gables commission meeting on May 10th, where, you know, where they, you know, made this proclamation about Coral Gables Day, uh, they also honored um, uh, economic development. There's like economic development week or proclamation. And and they do such a great job of, of social media over there that they took a picture with all of the people who were there to be honored for economic development day. And in that picture with all of the city commissioner, city manager and others, and all of those being honored, there isn't one African-American person in that picture. I mean, when you talk about economic development in the United States, typically um, you would expect, uh, you know, the underserved, the marginalized or somebody to be in that group where we're doing economic development. And the same day, uh, they honored uh, em emergency services. The EMTs were there and they took the picture with all of the EMTs, um, the, the city commissioners, everybody, they were all there. They took photos. And in that photo, there isn't one African-American on the same day. Then they invited middle school students there for what they what they dubbed a law day at, at City Hall. <clears throat> and th these great lawyers got up and and they talked. Uh, I think it was the president of the bar of, of Coral Gables. He got up and he talked about or the bar association. He got up and he talked about um, liberty and justice for all and tenants of America. And so they came down again from behind the desk and they took pictures with those middle school students. And in that photo, there isn't one African American. Um, so is it, you know, is it easy for easier for some people to feel comfortable in a context where, you know, they don't see anybody that looks like them? Um, some people can handle it well. Other people don't handle it so well. Um, but I will say that if you just look at photos, look at meetings, look at what's happening, um, you don't see very many people who look like the my church membership in the community that I serve involved in City Coral Gables. Supporters of Merrick argue that specifically, you know, the University of Miami and all their petitions has really overlooked contributions that Merrick made to the black community. He donated lands to the Bahamian immigrant community and money for a black school, according to one letter we found. Um, and so none of that negates his racist actions. But I'm just curious if you see where that fits, where Merrick's history fits into today's community. Well, well I got to say, I think we've got to be fair and we've got to do. I think a person deserves just like, you know, justice. And the truth is, you know, we can't talk about one side of the coin of George Merrick's life and ignore the other. All right. I mean, in, in, in psychology, there, there's a term called denialism. All right. And that's a person's choice to deny reality. You know, that's a, that's a, per, a person when a person refuses to accept an empirically viable, verifiable reality. And the truth is, Mr. Merrick was a founder of the city of Coral Gables. You know, the truth is that Mr. Merrick did donate money and he did donate land. And so we cannot, you know, we cannot ignore that that have, we can't deny that these things happen. At the same time, we cannot deny that he was a proponent for um, Negro removal is what they called it at the time, I think, for black removal. 
we can't, you know, ignore that, you know, he proposed the complete clearance of black people from within the city limits. You know, we cannot ignore that in the 30s, he advocated for all black families to be pushed out of Miami, Miami city limits into what he referred to as Negro towns. So I think the challenge is to do justice, right? To do him and his history justice. So if, if we're going to acknowledge um, his contributions, we also have to, I think in fairness, you know, at least have be willing to have a conversation and acknowledge his racism. I mean, and it was and and it was a terrible racism that is being perpetuated today. And, you know, and I realize we're switching back and forth a little bit from city of Miami territory to Coral Gables territory. And I'm curious what thoughts or feelings came up for you. Like, what does the city commission in Coral Gables, their recent vote to honor George Merrick, what does that say to you? I think there has to be an acknowledgement of the other side and then do something um, to to temper that. What do I mean by that? Well, there are Bahamian descendants whose hands actually built City Hall. So maybe during those founders days, you know, acknowledge the descendants of those people or or those people themselves and what they did and their contributions, the contributions of Afro-Bahamian people. So so and, and we aren't seeing that. And I know that this is really a hyper local focus. Right. But it is it is a topic. You know, these are issues that, um, you know, other cities and communities are grappling with nationally or even even globally in some cases, these painful histories and how to really reconcile two sides to someone. And I'm just curious, you know, if you have any messages or or if you have anything that you would tell someone in your community or maybe a member of your congregation who is really frustrated, you know, and wants to see change. What do you what do you tell that person? I would remind us that we haven't come as far as we thought. And so we have to stay in the fight. You know, I think time and place is is extremely important. Like there's a, sometimes there's just a good time and then sometimes it's, there's a bad time. You know, and in the wake of you know, George Floyd, you know, in the wake of Buffalo, New York, you know, in the wake of all of these hate crimes and racists uh, influenced acts of violence against African-Americans and people of color in our country. You know, this isn't the time, you know, to lift up and celebrate and honor someone who contributed to systemic racism. And we have to continue to stay in the fight, continue to educate ourselves um, and put ourselves in positions to have the conversations. That was the Reverend Nathaniel Robinson III. He is the senior pastor of Greater St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church in Coconut Grove, also the president and CEO of the St. Paul Community Development Corporation. After our first conversation on this topic, we did receive a statement from the president of the Historic Preservation Association of Coral Gables, which reads, in part, quote, the association admires Merrick for his altruism. He was an entrepreneur and a visionary, a millionaire who gave away most of his fortune before he lost the rest of it, a public servant and civic leader, an author and a poet. Building a city did not define him, poetry did. She maintains that facts in the original interview were taken out of context and feels that these conversations mischaracterize Merrick as well as ignore positive contributions that he made to the black community. Now, we are in the process of fact-checking 
most of her statement, and we will provide you with a report in the near future. Well, still to come, Florida's flamingos were thought to have disappeared. Are they making a comeback? Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. It's Wildlife Thursday, and today we're talking about an animal that is so iconic to Florida. Give you a hint. They have long legs, they can fly, and they're known for their pink hues. I know, you guessed it, right? Flamingos. WLRN's Dan Klingener brings us a detective story about these birds. It's a case of the not-so-missing Florida flamingos. Is there anything more Floridian than a flamingo? The iconic plastic lawn ornament, cocktail swizzlers, motel signs. Real flamingos do occasionally show up in South Florida, but the official story has been that these birds don't really belong here, that Florida flamingos were all hunted out of existence back in the 1800s. Mostly because we ate them or turned them into hats. Now South Florida researchers have published a paper showing that 100 years of scientific wisdom is wrong. A couple years ago, three flamingos showed up at the Naval Air Station near Key West. When birds that big are on the airfield, the Navy scares them away. Otherwise, the bird could get sucked into the engine and crash a $70 million jet. Not a good scene for the bird, either. One of those flamingos was a problem. Conky would not leave. Stephen Whitfield from Zoo Miami, calling the flamingo the very Key West name it ended up with. The team at Zoo Miami had been looking for a flamingo. They wanted to release one with a satellite tracker. This was in 2015. A year earlier, a flock of almost 150 flamingos had showed up in Palm Beach County. And the Zoo Miami people were trying to figure out, where were these birds coming from? So Conkey was captured and fitted with a satellite tracker. But then they ran into another problem. The state told us that we couldn't release non-native species. So that's when we started digging into the question of, are they really non-native? The state said, flamingos may occasionally wander through from Mexico, Cuba, or the Bahamas but the flamingos in Florida are more likely escapees. It's closing day at Hialeah, and the flamingos put on their show for the Miami crowd on hand for the Flamingo Stakes. The Hialeah Racetrack's famous flock of flamingos started in the 1930s, and that flock started reproducing. That was the same time that the Audubon Society started researching wading birds in South Florida, birds that mostly hang out in shallow water. Audubon Florida still does that research at the Everglades Science Center in Tavernier. Jerry Lorenz is the director. When Stephen brought us all together, the first words out of my mouth were, you know, those are just escapees. Why are we even talking about this? Almost 30 years ago, on his very first research trip out to Sandy Key, Lorenz saw a flock of 25 flamingos in the western part of the bay. He asked his boss where they came from. And he says, well, all the historical evidence indicates that they were escapees from Highly Racetrack. Historical evidence in this case means the opinion of researchers, especially the man who started the Audubon Science Center in Tavernier. Robert Porter Allen. Robert Porter Allen was the authority on the American flamingo. He had serious credentials. He was the National Audubon Society's director of research, and he literally wrote the book on flamingos, a 285-page study published in the 50s. When Allen retired, the biologist who took over had studied flamingos in the Bahamas for his master's degree. He was still the director when Lorenz got there. So these two guys really knew their flamingos, and both of them were insistent that these were escapees. That assumption 
that the Hialeah flock explained all Florida flamingo sightings hardened into doctrine. Everybody simply accepted that these were escapees because the experts said they were. And that's how correlation became causation. So again, when the state of Florida wouldn't let Zoo Miami release Conky into the wild because flamingos were officially a non-native species, the research team was like, wait, why is everyone so sure flamingos aren't native birds? There is no evidence at all that any of these birds that we're observing in Florida Bay are escapees. None. The team started its search for Florida flamingos by going back in time. In 1832, John James Audubon himself saw his first flamingos in the Upper Keys. Stephen Whitfield from Zoo Miami used 21st century databases to look through 19th century museum collections. In the late 1800s, collecting wild bird eggs was a weird but somewhat popular hobby. I think it was kind of like Pokemon Go, but real. He found four flamingo egg specimens that were labeled as having been collected in Florida, evidence that they nested here. They already knew flamingos were in Florida in big numbers in the 1800s, but then they were hunted for food and later for the pink feathers that were popular on ladies' hats. When they got to the 20th century, the researchers turned to data from people who'd been sharing information all along. What's great about birds is that people like to watch them. And since birding is kind of a sport, rare bird observations have been reported by birders for decades now. People reported seeing more and more flamingos again, and the numbers really took off in the last couple decades. On the horizon was this huge line of pink, and we were like, oh my gosh. In 2004, Pete Frezza was out with a colleague doing some research for Audubon in Mud Lake in the Everglades. They were used to seeing bright pink roseate spoonbills in the area. So they're sitting there in their boat, and they were like, Those are not spoonbills. They're too big. And we're like, Those are flamingos. 64 flamingos. And then there was that flock of 150 in Palm Beach County 10 years later. Frezza had also been collecting observations about flamingos from other people who spend time on the bay. And he didn't buy the escapees from Hialeah Racetrack explanation. No way. These were wild birds. They were in wild places, acting very wild. Frezza's data is part of the new study. So if there are wild flamingos showing up in Florida, where are they coming from? That's where Conky comes in. Conky would not leave. Conky, the flamingo from the Navy base near Key West. The state finally allowed the zoo to release Conky after researchers pointed out that two other flamingos banded in Mexico as chicks had been seen in the Everglades. There was no way they had escaped from Hialeah. Stephen Whitfield and the rest of the Zoo Miami team released Conky near Flamingo, the National Park Visitor Center at the bottom of the Florida mainland. He had a satellite transmitter attached to his leg. He's the first and only flamingo ever banded in the U.S. And what we expected was that Conky was going to fly to the Bahamas, to fly to Cuba, or fly to the Yucatan of Mexico. He was going to tell us, finally, where the flamingos in Florida come from. In that, he was a failure. Conkey, it turned out, was a homebody, and the satellite tracker showed that he stayed in Florida Bay. Pete Frezza from Audubon, Florida, says Conkey still made an important contribution to the knowledge about flamingos in Florida. He proved that flamingos can live year-round in Florida Bay. Florida Bay can sustain flamingos on an annual basis, which was pretty cool. The transmitter stopped working right after Hurricane Irma, but Conkey has been spotted a couple times since the storm. They're supposed to be here. They're not escapees. You don't treat them like exotic species. We have to treat them like a native species. In the 1800s, people used to see thousands of flamingos in Florida Bay. Lorenz says now that science has shown they belong here, that could happen again someday. 
And that was WLRN's Florida's Keys reporter, Nan Klingener. You can find a link to more of her reporting on flamingos on our social media at WLRN Sundial. By the way, the tall and gangly pink iconic creatures are now officially considered native by Florida wildlife authorities. And Conky, the flamingo that helped researchers with this discovery, is now, get this, the mascot of a local IPA beer out of the South Beach Brewing Company. So his legacy will be living on. Let's continue the saga of flamingos in Florida with Audubon Florida Director of Research, Dr. Jerry Lorenz. Jerry, great to have you back. How are you doing? Very good, Lewis. Good to be back. Thank you. You know, you hear this story, and if you go to the Florida Fish and Wildlife website now, you know, here's the flamingo categorized as native. How does it feel? You were part of making that happen. It feels wonderful. Um, Quite frankly, it... You know, I'm surprised at the beginning of that story that 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 you just ran. Nan and I were talking, and I really thought these birds are escapees. And working with Stephen really quickly turned me around. And um, yeah, we're very thrilled at that. Um, and you know, we've tried to um, uh, get the flamingo to be considered a threatened species in the state of Florida. Um, they're too rare and I, I don't disagree with what, what the state decided. Uh, but yeah, they, they have definitely at least, uh, deserve the protections under federal laws that, that were kind of ignored, uh, when they were declared, declared to be escapees. During the research, uh, you know, that got us to this point now, is there, is there a moment, a story or something that you found that jumped out at you that surprised you? Uh, when Stephen found museum specimen specimens of eggs from flamingos in Florida, I was really shocked, um, and I was very pleased. Um, there really isn't solid evidence, even with those eggs, that that they they did nest in Florida, but there's enough anecdotal evidence to convince me that they did. Um, and again, the my predecessors that were mentioned in that story as well, they both said that they didn't. So with modern technology, we were able to find some, Stephen was able to find some really interesting thing. Hmm. Let's come back to their classification, though, just to, you know, uh, because, again, you wanted you, you wanted to get more protections for them. But what, you know, and, and remind us, too, again, between state and federal protections. Well, state protections would I- indicate that the, uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission would have to come up with a recovery plan for the bird and would have to put some resources to it. And quite honestly, you know, the the biological review group of which I was a part, we came down on the side that it should be considered a threatened species. But there's all kinds of, of, of questions that go with declare, declaring a species threatened or endangered. And there's like five categories and then multiple questions that are each category. It only met the criterion under one category. And that was that the population was small. And I think that was tentative at best. Um, And on top of it, you know, we are are already doing things for the recovery of flamingos in Florida. We're doing as much as we can. It's basically protect the habitat and restore the habitat. And we are trying to restore the Everglades, and we have protected a great deal of habitat that flamingos use. When you say the the population is small, but is it growing? Well, 
interesting enough, interestingly enough, um, about two weeks ago, a colleague of mine sent me a video of 50 flamingos flying over the flamingo outpost in uh, Everglades National Park. Wow. And so, yes, I mean, all, all of our data, our publication indicates that they are recovering. What What is what I think is really going on is that, you know, these birds were not only hunted in Florida, they were hunted throughout their range. And so their population was so small uh, by the time, by the 1950s that there wasn't enough birds to push them to try and find new habitat. You, you know what I mean? It, they, there were probably over a million flamingos and it was down to less than 20,000. So they had plenty of habitat in Florida is on the fringe of their habitat. And and I think now that the population has recovered, we're going to see more and more of these flamingos coming in. Yes. And and but and with that that means too that they're not just hanging out in certain habitat. They I mean, we're here, we're all sharing the space. They kind of show up anywhere, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, we the largest flock that we've ever documented was in West Palm Beach in western West Palm Beach. But the historic data really does indicate that their primary habitat is Florida Bay, Florida Keys, and southwestern Everglades National Park, which are all very well protected already. How often do you see them? You? Not very often. Okay, good. I don't feel so bad because I'm thinking about when's the last time I saw one and I I can't, a live one? I just, I can't remember. No, you probably haven't, Lewis. It's, um... You know, those those 50 birds that I was talking about just a couple of weeks ago, I went out in a boat to try and find them. Um, one of my colleagues from Everglades National Park flew in a plane and another of my colleagues flew in a helicopter trying to find those 50 birds. And we could not find them. You would think that large pink birds would stand out. Yeah. But all of that effort and we could not find those 50 birds. And that's just the day after. Uh, I did just post on my Twitter that uh, the closest thing I've come to seeing flamingos is uh, there's a house like two blocks from me. And I think the woman there, the owner, has like 20 or 30 plastic flamingos in the yard. And that's <laughs> that's that's as close as I've come. You know what? For people who don't, if they, they've never, you know, seen a flamingo up close, how do you describe the bird? Like, what's its character like? What, what, what's a flamingo like? Um, well, they're weird. <laughs> You know, they're, they've got a strange bill. they got a strange way to feed. They're, they're very tall. They're surprisingly, you know, about five feet. So the bird that is often confused with flamingos, the roseate spoonbill, is a bird that I've studied heavily as well. Um, their difference in height is when, a, when they're both standing, you know, close to each other, the flamingo is almost three times taller. So they're a very large bird. They um have webbed feet uh they their tongue is fully trapped in their lower jaw so it's not a free moving tongue it moves back and forth slides across the lower jaw but you know they can't move it around their mouth they're just a strange animal uh but stunningly beautiful when you see them um you know that flock of 64 that was here in florida bay they they were here for quite some time and you would see them from miles away and you just knew that they were flamingos and not spoonbills, even though both are beautifully pink. It's just the flamingos are almost look iridescent. Mm. Again, I keep thinking 
have I ever seen one? And I'm just, if I did, it was a long, long, long time ago. I'm talking with Dr. Jerry Lorenz. He's the director of research at Audubon, Florida. It is Wildlife Thursday, and we're talking about flamingos, a bird so iconic to Florida. And you can find them all at, on your lotto tickets, motel signs, lawn decorations. They're pretty much everywhere, but you, you may not have seen one because they're hard to find. Uh, you can find photos and links to more information about Florida flamingos on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Jerry, how did they become like the iconic Florida bird? There's so many birds here. I I really don't know, Willis. That's a very good question. Um, you know, Florida has always been associated with the tropics and, the, you know, flamingos were here. So I imagine, you know, it's almost like an institutional memory. But how they became so identified with southern Florida when they're not at all common, I really don't know. Um, but they truly are, you know, when if you... Everybody thinks that they're, you know, thinks of flamingos when they think of Florida. Yeah. Um, do we know why the, the the beautiful pink color? How you know? What do we know about you know the origins of that? Um, you know, with both of the birds that I study, people ask me why they're pink, and I, I can't answer that question. I, I, my answer is I don't know. Mm. How they are pink is an interesting thing. Is that flamingos have to eat a lot of crustaceans? Um, and the crustaceans have carotenoids in them, which is a pigment. And they eat so much of that, that they just sequester that pink from the, you know, how, when you boil shrimp, it looks pink. They just sequester that color into their feathers. And so if they don't get a diet that's rich in these carotenoids, they will turn gray. Um, and that's, that's really interesting because the other pink bird that we have, the spoonbill does not eat a lot of crustaceans. It eats some, and it's the same pigment, but the spoonbill manufactures it. And so they're pink from the day that they hatch until the day they die. They, oh. they don't, their colors don't fade. So it's just an interesting metabolic pathway that one of the birds has to produce metabolically that pink, and the other one just says, ah, I'm getting enough of it, and puts it into its feathers. I'm glad that we don't turn into the color of the food we eat. All right, good to know that, though. Um, <laughs> you know, it, we're in hurricane season, and you know, I always think about anybody who's lived here long enough, you know that iconic picture of the dozens of flamingos that were sheltered in a public bathroom during Hurricane Andrew. Um, and that was an image taken by Zoo Miami's Ron McGill. But how do flamingos typically fare during hurricanes, or do they get out? Um, there has been a lot of damage to... Um, nesting colonies, Spoon, or I'm sorry, flamingos, their nests are very interesting too. They don't, they don't build stick nests. They, they pile up mud in the, almost a volcano looking hill, uh, with a, you know, dip in the center and that's their nest. And if I recall correctly, a very large colony was, was really, I forget where in their range, but it got hit by a hurricane and there was really high mortality. But I think if they're not nesting, and they're you know doing their social activities um they know to get out of the way you know these as as we said these birds we know they fly from the yucatan to florida um so they can get out of the way you know what i i, I wondered about coming back to describing the bird and what it's like if a person does see one or even gets close to one what th what should they know 
I know we should also always never, first of all, never feed animals. But what should we know about them? You know, just to be careful. Well, they they are. You know, surprisingly, birds are very light and delicate creatures, um, and so they, they they require a lot of energy to sustain themselves. They don't get fat. You know, they don't store fat like like mammals, like humans. And so every time you make that bird fly, you are cost, costing it a, a good deal of energy. Um, and so just keep your distance. It's, it's a, you know, they're a wild animal. They don't want to be disturbed. Um, and so just maintain your distance. It, it, it's hard to say, but if that bird flies, you are too close. And you you just have to learn that. Yeah. Do they um, ha- is there, do they have... Uh, uh, what's the biggest threat to them? Do they have natural predators? I know we're not, thank God, we're not hunting them like we used to a long time ago, but, you know, what are the bigger threats to them? Well, I would say that the only thing that that really um, would hunt them in their native habitat would be crocodiles and alligators in Florida. Um, Could be, I mean, a python may present a problem. We know that the pythons have been eating wading birds, but again, the flamingos are so rare, even though pythons are somewhat common, what are the what are the likelihood you're going to have one encounter the other? Um, probably like large raptors, large birds of prey, eagles. We do have pictures of an eagle uh, doing what we call stooping on a flamingo in the lower keys. This was just in this past year. A bald eagle was harassing a flamingo. Um, and we have pictures of that. So that's a possibility. But Generally speaking, they're probably not really susceptible to much predation. Hmm. And that's why they can be so pink, I guess. I got a question for you from a listener online. See if you know this one. And actually, I was trying to think of this. We got to figure this one out. We, we got a question from Matt on Facebook. And he, he asked, what happened to the flamingos that used to be at the original parrot jungle in Pinecrest? You know, I, I do not know. Um that is a good question. I know I I seem to recall that they made sure that all of those animals had a, a good home, but I do not know what happened to that nesting group of birds there. Matt, that is a great question. We got to look into that and find out. You know, I mean, you're telling you're sitting here telling me all of this about the flamingo, and you know, we've learned a lot the last couple of years. It seems we've learned a lot of new things about flamingos, but what do we still not know about these wading birds? We don't understand their diet completely. Um, and this, again, I go, I'll go back to Stephen. He's the one that, that really, really leads this group. Is There was a flamingo just a month or two ago that was hanging out in the, the water, uh, water conservation areas. And there were, I believe, three of them. And he went up there to find them and sample the water and see if he could figure out what they were feeding. And so he got there. They were feeding. He watched them. They got spooked, not by him. So he went over to where they were feeding and tried to collect the organisms that were there. And the birds came back and started feeding just, you know, 100 or 200 feet away from him. So they were feeding on something that he could not catch. He could not identify it. Um, And so their diet is somewhat of a mystery. You know, when Way back in the olden days, the way you would do diet studies on birds is you would shoot them and open up their stomachs. And there is some of that in the old literature. And literally, it's they, what they found in their stomach is mud. 
Um, so we don't completely understand what the, what flamingos in Florida are feeding on. That is one of the things that that our group is trying to figure out, um, and that's that's a pretty big mystery. So much to learn. I I hope some. I mean, almost forty years living in Florida, and I just again I haven't seen one. I hope one day I do. I will keep my distance. I will respect this space. I just would love to see one up close and personal. Jerry, always. Lewis, you got to get out more. I I live in a studio. I know that's true. Jerry, always a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. You are very welcome. It's been my pleasure. All right. Again, Dr. Jerry Lorenz, Director of Research at Autobahn, Florida. And listen, if you got a picture of a flamingo, uh, share with us. Where did you see it? Where have you seen them? Share with us on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, that's our program for this Thursday, June 9, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Leprey-Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. And Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Meritz engineering our board today richard ives by the way right now you're hearing pink flamingos by tracy bird if you missed any of the program today don't freak out it's okay you can listen to it tonight at eight or just listen to the podcast and by the way if you do listen to the podcast more often please subscribe rate and review always appreciate that all right coming up next week on the program we're going to talk with the director of the new father of the bride movie do you remember the first one with Steve Martin? They remade the movie. It's got Andy Garcia and Gloria Stefan, so it's got a very different, uh, you know, spin on it. It follows a Cuban American family going through their daughter's nuptials here in Miami. Also, we're going to be looking back at 40 years of books and books here in South Florida with Mitch Kaplan. All that coming up next week on the program. Remember, you can follow us online, WLRN.org, or on our social media, Facebook or Twitter at WLRN Sundial. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. We're back live on Monday. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.